right, everybody. Good morning. How are we doing? Good morning. Great. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I hope that you have found uh, uh, the heart of God during worship and have a chance to sort of just reflect on who we are and where we are and why we're here. And um, You know, it can be so easy to come to church and just that becomes a routine. It's what you do. You just kind of show up and things happen. And But often we forget that we come here because we... We need to surrender more. We come here because we can't do life without Jesus. We come here because maybe you don't know Jesus and you're trying to find the answer. And we come here for all different reasons, but that all of us, in whatever way we walk into this building, we're one step away from encountering God in a new and fresh way. And that's really why we're here. Our goal is to try to understand God more. And you may be right now going, I don't even believe in God. That's okay. You may be, you know what, I, I grew up, I was told about God, I'm just trying to find out if this is real or not because I need real answers. Or you may be here going, you know what, I, I'm, I believe in Jesus, I'm doing my best to follow Him, but I, I, I'm just not there yet. I need, I need something to move me forward. Or maybe you're just here on the highest spiritual moment you've had, just thanking God for what He's doing. It doesn't matter because you're right where God has you. And I'm glad you're here. Now we're in a series about uh, uh, sort of the challenges of the early church, and it turns out that those challenges are the same challenges we have now. That the same things that have been attacking the church in the first century with the apostles and the, the followers of Jesus had to deal with are the very same things that we're dealing with today. And we're in 2 Peter which cleverly is Peter's second book. Um, and Peter was one of the disciples, and so we've been through that. So if you have missed that, or you forgot it, which I tend to do, feel free to go back online. All the sermons are there. All the sermon notes are there. You can sort of check that out. Now I'm going to show my age a little bit. Um, many of the young adults that I teach on Friday nights, they, they don't really know what black and white television was, I don't think. And... Uh, <laughs> But one of my favorite shows when I was a young child was a show called You Are There by Walter Cronkite. Now, I, I don't know if you guys remember this show, but it's a show where they take you back to a historical moment, and Walter teaches you all about it as if you're there. I loved that show. It took you back in time. You see, from a very young age, I've loved learning about history. Several years ago, I got to speak to a woman who'd survived Auschwitz. She'd been a young girl at the time, but her memory and her story were just spellbinding. I remember just sitting there looking at her. She's describing what happened to her family, and I, I kept watching her hands, thinking, wow, those hands were at Auschwitz. I mean, as a little girl, she got tattooed at Auschwitz and the tattoos on her arm. And I thought how horrible that must have been as a young girl to have to go through that. I know what it's like for young kids to go through normal medical procedures. Just kept thinking about how she was actually at Auschwitz. So her words carried such power because she, she's an eyewitness to what she saw. She's in her 90s, but her memory and recall were spot on. I'd been to the memorial in Jerusalem. I, I'd seen all the pictures. I'd examined every exhibit. I learned everything I could, but she was actually there. And because she was there, her words were like gold. 
You may know that I'm fascinated by history. I can remember sitting by a fireplace as a young child with my grandfather. And he would tell me stories of what it was like to grow up in southern Arkansas during the Depression. It was like living with the Waltons, it seemed like, if that means something to you. <laughs> and he would sort of lean back in his chair and he kind of gaze off. And you could tell that in his mind, he's just, he's going back there. He's, he's seeing it as he's talking to you. Images of this world that's gone by. When I was in medical school, I was at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, and I drove one of my professors crazy because he was a trauma doctor at Parkland the day Kennedy was shot. And I had to know everything. He'd be wanting to teach us about other things. I'm like, no, 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 I don't, I'm not going to be a surgeon. Let's talk about what happened that day when Kennedy came into the ER. And as a child, I can remember, I grew up very close to the Texas Theater where Oswald was basically arrested. And I can remember going, that's a place I went, that's a street I go to. One of my favorite memories about my dad was an afternoon we spent together the last time I saw him. His mind was sharp. He told me about our family history. We talked in detail about he'd researched the Burns family all the way from pre-Civil War days all the way up through now. And, and I just remember sitting there just thinking about all that he'd seen and done. I love that. This week I spent two hours in a room with an OBGYN doctor who was well into his 90s. And he was just telling me about life as a doctor, as a black doctor. Amazing to hear his stories, and I was just spellbound. I just sat there going, Just give me more. In fact, it was in a room where there was a camera, and the nurses were watching, going, Should we go get him out? He's been in there forever. Like, you couldn't pry me away from this place. This is like gold for me. My favorite movie of all time is a movie called The Trip to Bountiful. Almost nobody's seen this movie. But it's a story about this older woman who just wants to get back to her childhood home. She just wants to walk through the yard one more time. And the whole story is about how she's trying to get back to this place. Her family thinks she's crazy. Geraldine Page won an Academy Award for Best Actress in this movie in 1985. It was filmed, of course, in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Absolutely, of course. Here's what I love about all these moments. I love when people begin to talk about the past and their mind, did you see, they just kind of drift off and they look and they kind of gaze off and you can tell they're watching something. They're watching that video in their mind. I'm thinking, man, if you could just move that over to my head, I would be like the happiest camper on the planet. And the more they go back, the more they remember. The last time I was in Dallas, I went home. I spent seven hours in a car just driving around where I used to live. Going from place to place, remembering where I used to sit when I was at a certain place or a ballpark I used to play at. Or, and I would never take anybody with me because it'd be a totally torture for them. <laughs> but I would like go to this park where I used to play softball as a kid and I'd just sit on the bleachers and I'd just sit there and people probably thought I was crazy. There's something about it, I just love that. I went from place to place, memory to memory. And it's amazing when you start putting yourself into the past, memories start coming up. You start remembering more and more things. Emotions begin to return, both good and bad. It can be triggered by a song. It can be triggered by a, a smell or a sound. It's one of the greatest gifts God gives us is our memory. 
can take us back to a place and we can go there whenever we want. Tammy will tell you that I can sit on a Civil War battle site for hours, I mean hours, and it seems to me like it's been about five minutes. And I have no idea what I'm thinking about. I'll just watch, like something's happening in front of me and nothing is. I have this incredible, insatiable appetite for history. I have had it since I was a young boy, and that's why I think I love studying the Bible so much. It's why I love going to the Holy Land. It's why I love sharing with you the historical context of these incredible words that came from these eyewitnesses who actually walked with Jesus. I spare you the details of all the things that I spend thinking about before we come up here every week. Because we could be here for hours talking about two words, maybe. But I love the historical context of the Scriptures. So you can imagine how amped up I get when we begin talking about the apostles and the books they wrote and the letters they wrote telling their eyewitness story. See, we pick up a book and we go, oh, it's 2 Peter. No, it's Peter's second letter. The eyewitness, he was there with Jesus. Every word we should be just holding on to because Peter was there. He walked on water. He cut a dude's ear off and watched Jesus go, oh, I'm sorry, here, put that back on. <laughs> it was crazy, but it's Peter we're reading. And to me, that just, that amps it up. It makes it like, whoa. And that's where we find ourselves in this series. He's an older man, but in his mind, it's crystal clear. And he's an eyewitness to the greatest moments that have ever happened in human history. And he's starting to lean back in his chair and talk about what he sees. And I wonder what it must have been like. Peter was there. His feet walked on water. Everything his eyes saw, everything, every memory of Jesus stored in his mind. Can you imagine sitting and listening to Peter? He was there. The closest you and I will have to that experience. To experience is through those who are eyewitnesses. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be a huge pest for a very long time. <laughs> it is a good thing that we're there for eternity because I'm going to be hunting people down going, okay, so tell me what it was like. What were you wearing? What was going on? But I always want to hear everybody tell everything. But here's the deal. It is the account of an eyewitness that brings almost unchallenged authority. Right? I mean, when you and I, when we think about things that happen, if there's an eyewitness there and they're credible, then often what they say is incredible. Therefore, Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right as long as I'm in this body, he says, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you'll be able at any time to recall these things. The tone here from Peter is one of a pastor's heart. 
Even though he's facing his own death, he's in prison, he's on death row, he knows Jesus told him, you're done, dude. It's over. You're going home. His concern is for the well-being of the people that will be left behind. He has a pastor's heart. He almost mentions his departure as an aside. Yeah, I'm getting ready to leave. That's okay. But here's what's really important. He's going to spend a good deal of the last letter telling us, hey, don't forget what you've been taught. I'm getting ready to leave, but whatever you do, don't forget what you've been taught. It seems odd at first. But, but false teachers are starting to come into the church. Peter has a genuine concern that people could become distracted, that they could be lured away from what they know to be true. They could be pulled into these endless controversies and these ridiculous arguments from these enlightened discussions. And interesting, in this passage, Peter uses a very unique word. It says he wants them to be firmly established to describe their faith. Firmly established. Those words have specific memories for Peter. He didn't choose that word randomly. Those are the exact words that Jesus used to warn Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I've prayed for you in Greek that your faith will be firmly established. Peter is echoing what Jesus told him when he was about to fail in his faith. Peter now years later is turning to the people he leads and he says in the same way, using the same words, I'm praying that your faith won't fail because temptation's coming to you too. It's, it's amazing when you think about it. Peter, who said, I'll never deny you, knew that he denied Jesus after he said he wouldn't. Now he's turning to the people he's been leading. He's going, look, I know you say you're not going to listen to these false teachers, but you need to be firm in your faith. Your faith may not fail, he says. That your faith will be firmly established when temptation comes, and temptation is coming. Peter wants to remind them of what he's been teaching them. Remember, we've talked about how Peter's been teaching about, you know, you were in a canyon, you were rescued, you had to hold on to the lifeline, you would be dead without Jesus. Hold on to him with everything you have, the word, him, everything. You've got to love Jesus and hold on to him so tightly because that's the only thing that's going to pull you out of the corruptive state that your life has become. And Peter says, look, you've been given the truth. And since you've been given the truth, I need to remind you of it. I need to help you remember it. This is a very common Jewish way of learning. You're reminded of something. Then you're invited to stay in that moment and remember and to experience and to refresh the memory. And then you're told to establish a way to remember these things. Okay, and we see that, we just don't think about it. What Peter says is, look, your memories have to be reminded, refreshed, and then you got to remember. Reminded, refreshed, and remember. In the history of God's people, they use their memories to do exactly this. God designated a rainbow as a reminder. That he won't judge the earth, such as a flood in Noah's generation. Every time people saw a rainbow, that took them back. It helped them remember. It, it took them back to the faith. The Passover reminded the Israelites of God's saving power. 
so that all the days of your life you may remember what God did when you departed from Egypt. The weekly Sabbath is a reminder to us from Deuteronomy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you will do no work. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God command you to keep a Sabbath day. The Sabbath was supposed to remind you of God's provision and protection. And then Jesus Himself gave us the Lord's Supper for continual nourishment, commanding, do this in remembrance of Me. Throughout the Bible, throughout Jewish learning, there's always moments where they say, do something to remember. Build an altar. Leave some rocks. Make a monument. Build a temple. Do something so that you will not forget what happened. And Peter says, you've been given the truth. You have to remember. And remember why. Peter moves to the issue at hand. False teachers have come to the church. And they're discrediting Peter, and they're discrediting the apostles. They are challenging their reports of Jesus, and particularly saying Jesus isn't coming back. That was their big claim. Jesus is not going to return. These false teachers are attacking the very foundation of the church, the apostles and the prophets. Remember, Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles developed the foundation of truth. The church is built on that. These guys are going straight to the foundation of the early church. Gnostics are in the churches. Gnostics are the people that teach these things. And they're literally trying to bring down the foundation. And Peter's about to leave. And he's like, you can't do that. So he continues. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Peter says, look, we didn't follow some clever myth that we made up in our minds. Obviously, the false teachers of the day had been making the claim that Peter and the apostles had been making up stories about Jesus. Satan is attacking the foundation of the church. He's trying to convince people that the truths they've been taught are actually myths. It's not an an uncommon argument today. We see it. Many claim that the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, are nothing more than a collection of fables. Made up stories by people who are naive. Not only do many say this today, but the same lie was leveled at the prophets a thousand years before we ever see some of these things occur in the life of the apostles. Ezekiel 2049, Then I said, O Lord God, they are saying of me, is he not a maker of parables? So from the prophets to the apostles to Jesus to us today, one of Satan's biggest, most effective ways of discrediting the foundation of the church is this book is a group of fables. It's not God's truth. It's not real. The Gnostics said Peter had come up with these cleverly devised myths to make himself the leader of the church. They argue that Peter is using the fear of sin and future punishment to keep himself in power. They state that he's keeping them from the special knowledge they really need which will truly save them. Peter specifically mentions their teaching about the power and coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming. Or as we learned in the Apostles' Creed a few weeks ago, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. You see, for the 
false teachers in the church then and today, the second coming is a big problem. To the Gnostics, everything created, every physical thing you've ever seen is bad. Everything spiritual is good, right? And we've talked about this. So they believe Jesus as a spirit, as a good, holy thing, could never become human. Because to do so, he would have been bad. And spiritual, holy things can't be bad. So what they say is Jesus was never fully human. He was just a spirit who wandered through the earth and at times would appear like a human. And then they would tell you that because he's not a human, that he didn't really have to die on the cross. And he couldn't have died on the cross because he wasn't alive to begin with as a human. And the reason he never died on the cross, never resurrected, and isn't coming back is it turns out your sin, which happens in your body, has nothing to do with the purity of your spirit. So you can do whatever you want in your body, and it doesn't matter. Therefore, there's no reason to judge, no sin, no process that you have to go through. You don't need salvation. Here's what you need. You need the special knowledge that only we have. Hmm. You see, they thought that what you did in your body had nothing to do with what happened to you spiritually. And as a result, they were so fixed on the ability to do whatever they wanted. And we see this in Greek and Roman culture. The flesh gone absolutely nuts. And nobody seeming to be concerned at all about their spiritual life. And the reason is they believe the Gnostics. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter as long as you have the knowledge. So their minds are clouded by greed and corrupt desire. And the idea that Jesus was going to come back and judge, that's problematic for people that are living like that. The same argument's prominent in our world today. Rather than just accepting God's truth as true and surrendering to it, people try to find ways to take God's truth to allow them to keep on sinning, doing what they want to do, or they just reject it straight out all the way. They don't want to call a sin a sin. They don't want to think about the possibility of future punishment or anybody coming back to judge them. And the opponents of the apostles have argued that Peter and the apostles deliberately came up with this idea of judgment so they could control everybody through fear. Those Christians just want to keep you from having a good time. In fact, we're going to learn as we go that denying the return of Jesus is one of the key indicators that were given to expose false teachers in the church. Those who deny Jesus' return or downplay judgment or downplay hell or downplay the doctrines that are clear in the Bible are false teachers. You can't present the entire gospel and leave out the book of Revelation. You can't believe all the words of the Old Testament prophets and ignore their fulfillment in the future times. It comes in all varieties in our culture. People, people say, oh, there's no end times. Or they'll say there's no hell. Or if there's a hell, it's really not a bad hell. It's more like a party. We're all going to go down there and hang out. Or there's no judgment and everybody gets into heaven because we're all great on a curve. And there's only three or four people going to be in trouble. And that's people like Hitler and stuff. So the rest of us are good. Satan doesn't care which one you pick. Just pick one. All of them will keep you from heaven. 
Whether you want to downplay what God says about hell, or whether you want to downplay what He says about Jesus, or whether you want to believe there's some other way, it doesn't matter. You'll find out in a very short time from now that there's a very real hell. And if you happen to be here on earth, on that incredible day when Jesus returns, He's coming back as a warrior to judge those who rejected Him and to set the world straight. So Peter wants to remind them, wants to remind us and everybody else who he's going to leave behind. You think these are cleverly devised myths? Really? Peter says, look, let me share something with you that you may have forgotten. He takes them on his own I was there show. You see, you may think that these are cleverly devised myths, but let me remind you of something. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter's going into his, I'm an eyewitness. This is the part I particularly love. The moment when the eyes drift off and Peter starts looking back and he begins to replay a moment in his mind of if he's there again. And if you think about it, the only reason you or I ever trust any historical record is because we trust the person that recorded it. The only reason we believe any event, and Peter says, cleverly devised myths, really? You forget who you're talking about. There are no myths coming from this eyewitness, he says. In fact, Peter shares them that he's an eyewitness not only to the earthly ministry of Jesus, but he's seen heavenly things too. He tells them, look, I know the second coming's real. I know Jesus is going to be glorified. I know he's going to come back shining brighter than we can ever have. Because, oh, by the way, I've seen it. I was on the mountain. I saw a light that didn't just shine on him, it came from him. I've seen him transfigured and glorified. Don't you dare tell me that what he told me, what I witnessed, is not going to happen. And if that's not enough, when I got up off my knees freaking out, I heard the voice of God. The very voice of God. The same voice Moses heard on Mount Sinai when he was freaked out. And that voice said, listen to him. So you think I'm going to come in here with cleverly devised myths after experiencing the very presence of Jesus glorified himself? You're out of your mind. And interesting, Peter chooses a very specific word for eyewitness. It's not a common word. There is a common word for being an eyewitness, but Peter chooses a different word, a classical Greek word. And what it means is it speaks as an eyewitness to those who have seen the highest of mysteries known to man. Peter's saying, look, I'm not telling you I'm an eyewitness. I'm an eyewitness. I've seen things man has not seen. Peter is the only writer in the New Testament to use that word, and he uses it here as a noun, and in chapter 2 and 3 as a verb. He wants people to know that he's an eyewitness 
but he's an eyewitness to higher spiritual things. Peter had to be beside himself. I mean, imagine what this is like. You're an eyewitness of everything Jesus did, and now you're challenged by people who know nothing. And Peter and people are starting to listen to them. And so Peter begins to remember. He remembers the moment. The moment when he knew Jesus was God. The moment when he knew Jesus would return. The moment when he knew that Jesus would be transfigured and glorified in the moment when he heard the very voice of God tell him, this is my son. This historical event in history has only three eyewitnesses. Peter, James, and John. And Peter is not so subtly reminding them, excuse me, but I was there. I'm an eyewitness. His mind goes back to Luke 9. Now about eight days after this saying, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep because when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men stood with him. And as he was saying these things, the cloud overcame and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. And the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was there alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. He's seen Jesus in his glory. He heard the voice of the Father. He's an eyewitness to what the second coming will be like. He says, look, we're not making this stuff up. In fact, we've already seen what the second coming will be like. And we've heard the voice of God confirm his authority to do so. We are reliable reporters and interpreters of what we've seen and heard. Now the symbolism here is important. Nothing in the Bible is accidental. Moses was taken up to Mount Sinai on top of the mountain to hear the very voice of God that they're now seeing to establish the first covenant of the Jewish people with their God. Now Jesus is back on a holy mountain being transfigured in the presence of God. They're hearing the voice of God as the second covenant is being established for the future people. Elijah is a prophet who never died. He was taken up to heaven. So standing with Jesus, we see Elijah the prophet and Moses the keeper of the law. So on top of this mountain you have the prophets, the law, and the fulfillment of that, Jesus himself. And the Father saying, listen to him. He's the fulfillment of the things these people have been talking about. And Peter's like, dude, I was there. I was there. And then... God points us to a future day when two witnesses will also come, Revelation 11.3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. From beginning to end, this book has themes and patterns that represent the truth of God's plan. It says about a week after he spoke to them. Well, what he spoke to them about was his future coming. How he would come back in the Father's glory with holy angels. And Jesus took Peter and them up on the mountain. And the glory they saw, what they witnessed. The same light that had terrified the people of Israel in the desert. 
the fire by night and the cloud by day, the light on top of the mountain where they said, we can't go up there, it's too holy, I don't want to go there. The light that Moses experienced and, and the light who made faces glow for days, that light. People in Moses' time says, look, don't have God speak to us or we'll die. And that's the same light, by the way, that we're going to see. Amen. Revelation 21, 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The same light that was on the mountain at Mount Sinai that led them through the desert, that transfigured Jesus, that Jesus himself will have when he returns, is the same light that one day will come to us. Why would these men who have seen such things invent stories? That's what Peter's saying. If you think for a minute, after being in the presence of God, that we're going to come up with something on our own, you've never been in the presence of God. God told him, this is my son. He's echoing back the words of the psalmist from years before. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possessions. So Peter's saying, invent stories really? I saw it. I heard it. I went to my knees in fear. Jesus was glowing. I mean glowing. That voice. I'll never forget the voice. And oh, by the way, Peter says, if you don't believe me, we were on the mountain. John's over in Ephesus. Go talk to him. Okay, if you're saying, I made this up, go talk to John. He was there too. James would be, but you sort of took care of him. Go talk to John. He'll tell you the same thing. And then he continues, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn days and the morning star rises in your heart. The words of the prophets are not only written on the subway wall. They're fully revealed in the Holy Scriptures. The eyewitness accounts of the prophets. We've seen the prophetic word. We've seen the promise of the prophets. And now Peter says they have been more fully confirmed. Those promises that the prophets talked about, we've seen now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament Scriptures are valid because everything they pointed to was a Messiah, and Messiah has come. Peter knew that the apostles had not made up their stories any more than the prophets had made up theirs. Both the prophets and the apostles speak of the ultimate coming of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.10 in Peter's first letter. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter says, look, I'm not the only one. The prophets have been talking about this. Everybody's been talking about the return of Jesus for Judgment Day. Every prophet, every Old Testament story, Jesus himself confirmed that there would be a day when he's coming back to judge. And we know from Peter's teaching that he lived in constant awareness of this. You see, we don't have just Peter's story now. We can go back and look at the sermons he preached. And in his sermons, he almost always talked about the return of Jesus. At Pentecost, when he stood up to tell the sermon that would convert thousands of people, he quoted from the prophet Joel, who years later had promised a judgment day, a great and magnificent day. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, a great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Another time, Peter's preaching in the temple after he'd healed a crippled man. And he tells them they need to repent, and they need to repent right now. And they say, why? And he says, because Jesus is coming back to set things straight. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke of by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words, just like Jesus fulfilled the coming based on the prophets, there's another prophetic word that says he's returning. And we're in a time where we're waiting that to happen. It's as good as done. But we're waiting for that moment. So this idea of Jesus coming back is not a new thing for Peter. He's very clearly reminding him, look, if you can't trust that we're eyewitnesses, then put your trust in the prophets and the word. The prophetic word has been more fully confirmed. Everything is in alignment, Peter says. You not only need to listen to me, you need to hold on to the scriptures. You see, God has given you and me a light that we're to hold on to, that we're to take into the darkness, he says. That light is the word of God, the word himself. He is the light. They will lead you through the darkness. Hold on to them. What he's saying is, look, you're in a dark world. You've been saved. You've been rescued. But you've got to hold on to Jesus. You've got to hold on to the Scriptures. They're your lifeline. They are going to get you home. There is a light leading you through the canyon, through the places to get you home. Stay with the light. This world is a dark, dangerous path, and the only Word of God can lead us safely. Dark carries with it here the idea of a debased moral atmosphere. We live in the present evil age, Paul says, and there's always a danger of being confused by the ways of the world or being conformed to the pattern of the world with your thinking. The only safe course for all of us is to hold on to the truth that Jesus has. And he says this in John 8:12: I am the light of the world me will never walk in darkness, but, but, but don't miss this, will have, future tense, the light of life. You see, it's not just that we follow the light on earth through the darkness. He's saying, look, one day, just like I became this transfigured thing, the light's going to be in you too.
Paul said to the Galatians that we live in this present evil age. Told the Ephesians that we can be confused by the ways of the world. And warned the Romans that we should never be conformed. There's only one answer, John would tell us, and Peter is now stirring us up by way of reminder. As we start to look at Peter, we start to remember these things. John 8, 12, and Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Sadly though, even though the Father left the light on for us, not all would follow the light home. All things were made through him, and without him not any that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world didn't know him. And he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Peter says, look, remember. I need to remind you. Pay attention to the light. The light of Jesus, the light revealed in the Holy Scriptures, in the person, in the prophets, in the truths. Stay attached to that. And then Peter goes back to his main point. There will be a day, a day in the future, a day which we will no longer be in darkness, a day when the prophets promised, when Jesus promised that Jesus would return a glorious, magnificent, and wonderful day. And when that day dawns, he says, everything will be different. Everything is set right. The morning star not only rises in the sky, it's going to rise in your heart. The idea of a bright morning star, a star that outshines every other star. And Jesus is the one who the prophets foretold. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. When Jesus comes, we won't need the prophetic word anymore to shine light for us. When he comes, our very hearts will be enlightened by the morning star himself. Jesus himself said this, I, Jesus, have sent angel to testify to you about these things. Just like Peter. For the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. On that day when our bodies are transfigured in the resurrection, our spirits are made perfect in Him, we shall see Him as He is, we shall see Him face to face, we shall know Him and be fully known. We shall enter into full possessions of the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. To summarize this most crucial verse, in defense of his teachings, Peter finds room to tell Christians to focus on their spiritual growth. In this world, murky with lies and dark with sin and corruption and false teachers and people who want to tell you all kinds of things, you got to hold on to the lamp. You got to hold on to the truth. You got to hold on to what the apostles protected and guarded. And as you do that, one day in the future, there's going to be a day when the rest of the world is going to be freaking out about judgment because they said it would never happen. And you're going to call it a magnificent day because you're going to feel the very light of Jesus, the morning star, rise up through your heart and you will be a new person. 
and the promises will be true, and everything will be set right finally. And Peter says, I know that day's coming because I saw a glimpse of it on the mountain. There's a day coming. Call it whatever you want. Dreadful day, great day. It's coming. It's on the calendar. Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see, a day is going to come when we no longer have to follow the light because we'll know Jesus so well and His light will be in us so strongly. Peter says, just like he was to me, on top of that holy mountain, that light didn't shine on Jesus. It came from him. And when that morning star rises in you and me, we're going to shine too. Our world is dark. I believe it's darker than it's ever been. People are living literally as if there's no judgment day. And they want to convince you that that day will never happen because it hasn't happened yet. They want to try to convince you that there's no real sin. They want to try to convince you, sadly, that there was never a real Jesus, never a real cross, never a real resurrection, never a real second coming. You see, the Gnostic teaching has been growing for 2,000 years. It's the same crap Satan has been teaching forever. And sadly, there are believers who are being pulled away by false teaching because they're not holding on to the truth because they don't know it for themselves. And anybody who's got a slick presentation on YouTube or can figure out how to do a TV show on the History Channel or can have a slick presentation in their church service can convince you to believe something that the Scriptures say are not true. And Peter would be screaming at us going, but I'm an eyewitness. Don't forget. My grandfather would sit back in his rocker in the den by the fireplace and gaze off into the fire and intro the video reel he was about to see in his head. He always started his stories in the same way. Well, Frank, you see, the world hasn't been the way it is today. Back when I was young like you, things were very different. And yet, as he shared his life that he had witnessed, in many ways, it was exactly the same as mine. And I think he knew that. That's why he told me the stories. You see, the stories were different, but people are not. And the more I saw his past, the more I saw my future. I think he knew that too. That's how I see Peter, just like my granddad, toward the end of his life, gazing off, thinking about the past, sharing what he'd witnessed, knowing that he was impacting the future, stirring me up by way of reminder, refreshing memories, creating ways to keep remembering after he's gone. My granddad knew what Peter knew. There would be many people coming in my life, people who did not love me the way he did, people who want to teach me false things and lead me astray for their own purposes, people who want to convince me that what I know to be true is not. You see, my granddad didn't just tell stories to share his past. 
told stories so that he could share in my future. And he knew he wouldn't be here for it. His stories always had a point, a lesson that he wanted to make sure I knew. Something that he knew to be true because he witnessed it. And I would do well to remember it. I thank God for my granddad. Thank God for Peter. Let's pray. God, um, sometimes it's easy for us to forget that these holy words are written by eyewitnesses. People who literally walked with you, who experienced you, and who have absolutely no motive to do anything other than just share with you the experiences that they had. God, in our world, people are constantly trying to tell us that this book is full of myths and fables by people that honestly have likely never read the book. Or if they have read the book, they've never read it trying to find you or understand you. They just read it trying to discredit you. So God, we're not those people. We're people who've been rescued. We're people who've been entrusted with the truth. We're people who need to hold on to the truth because we are being bombarded in very sophisticated ways with false teaching. God, there is a judgment day coming because you say so. Every person needs to know Jesus because you say so. A sin is a sin because you say so. So God, when we want to start picking up this book and rewriting it, or changing it, or discrediting it, or ignoring parts of it, would you just make us miserable until we learn to surrender to the truth that you've already revealed? We love you for giving us eyewitness accounts, for taking us back to those moments spiritually, but most of all, for preparing us for the future that's ahead of us by learning from the past. We love you. We thank you for all that you give us, and we thank you for these words. But God, please, 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 don't leave us where we are. Make us a people who apply what we learn. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.